This is the Lattice Training Podcast, where we bring you the best in climbing performance and training from the world's elite athletes, thought leaders, and coaches. Hello, everyone. I hope you're doing very well. Today's episode is an interview that I'm slightly nervous about because my guest is possibly the hottest thing right now in climbing podcast land. Stephen Dimmitt is the founder and owner of the Nugget Climbing Podcast, which has only been going just over two years, but has already had a huge impact on the climbing community. His show has interviewed some of the greatest climbers of all time, including people like Ben Moon, Ron Kalk, and Hazel Finley, but has also explored the world of training, performance mindsets, nutrition, and climbing rehab. I came across Stephen when he was a client of ours back at Lattice many years ago, but connected again with him recently as a guest as a, on his show myself. And what really struck me was that his patient and measured approach to drawing out all the best information from guests that'd be really high value for the audience, whether it was inspiration, knowledge, or entertainment. And this got me thinking that if we've got someone here who spent the last two years interviewing some of the world's best climbers and most interesting members of the climbing community, then surely he's observed some patterns and commonalities between all these individuals. Maybe he's like the Tim Ferriss of the climbing world, and I can sit him down for you guys listening and pull out all his own nuggets for the Lattice audience. In this episode, I'm going to be talking to Stephen about some of the guests on the show, how he gets that information from those sources and utilizes it in his own climbing or with the clients he's working with. And finally, I want to chat about some of his experiences with living and working on the road from a van and also trying to perform. Welcome to the show, Stephen. Thank you, Tom. That was such a flattering intro. I'm, I'm really happy to be here. Good to see you oh, again. Yeah, and you. And uh, I think it's, it's time we turn the tables because last time we chatted, you were interviewing me, but now, now I don't know who's in the hot seat. It's you or me, one of the, one of the two. <laughs> That sounds fair. Yeah, I'm. I'm um, yeah, it, the the Tim Ferriss thing, man. That's such a flattering compliment. He was my main inspiration when I started this whole thing. I was an engineer living, you know, in Bend, Oregon, and stuck in a cubicle in a nine to five, and I would just binge podcasts all day because I was just obsessed. My obsession with getting better at climbing had kind of swelled into just self improvement in general, and I just became really obsessed with trying to learn whatever I could from these amazing mentors, you know, that are out there in the world. And Tim Ferriss was kind of my main hub. Like he introduced me to so many incredible people. And then I would listen to their audiobooks or read their books or listen to their shows and things like that. Um, but that kind of kicked this whole thing off was this moment when I thought, man, if something like that existed for climbing, that'd be so valuable. I would, I would love to listen to that show. And um, a couple of years later, here we are. Yeah. And, and for everyone listening, they, they can't see what I can see on the screen, which is the inside of a van. But can you sort of explain, talk us through your setup that you have now, your, your full time on the road? Is that right? Yeah, that's right. I've been, on, I've been living in this van for two and a half years. So I moved into it when I still had that engineering job. Spent the first six months just living. I was like split between my friend's driveway and the parking lot at the job that I had. And was just saving money and, and trying to pay off the van as quickly as possible. But yeah, so I live in a ProMaster Dodge van. It looks a lot like a Sprinter van. 
um, hired a friend of mine to build it out. So it's very comfortable. It's got like the, you know, the tongue and groove wood ceiling and nice cabinets and things like that. And been living on the road full time for two years, just chasing the climbing weather around the United States. And at first it was all in-person interviews. So I was kind of planning my travels around where I thought I could connect with climbers and interview them in person. And then the pandemic hit. Uh, I, I hit the road like two months before COVID, you know, really blew up and became a thing here in the States and things started closing down. And that forced me into remote interviews and doing Zoom. And that has just been awesome. It's just, it's just opened up the world. And I've been able to connect with people like you. I've been able to focus a little bit more closely on my own climbing goals because I don't have to think as much about where are people going to be who I can interview. Um, but yeah, for the last two years, I've been just kind of on the, the circuit going from Washington, where I grew up, to Colorado, to Utah. Um, I'm down in Waco Tanks right now talking to you from my little campsite here in Waco. Amazing. I mean, uh, the, the inside of your van does look very good. I'm, I'm slightly, I'm actually quite curious about the, the blackboard that you've got on the wall. <laughs> Are there these like training plans on there or, or, or what's, it's- what's on there? Goals. Yeah. Goal. Little like daily reminders too. You know, sometimes if I'm just trying to be mindful of, of something or remind myself, you know, to slow down and take a deep breath, just simple little things. I'll have little reminders on there, but for the most part, let's see, I've got my 2022 goals and I've got uh, goals for this year. And then I've got, um, I have this big climbing goal for myself. I'd love to climb this route at Smith Rock called Just Do It, which your listeners may or may not be familiar with, but that's like my ultimate climbing dream is to do that climb. And it's probably, it's probably five or more years out for me, but I've broken it down into sub goals. I have like six sub goals to work my way towards that. So I have the next sub goal on, on the, the list is also on the blackboard. So it's just, you know, I, I don't really think about it consciously, but I just see it every day. And it's just kind of this ever-present reminder that's there on the wall. And has starting up and running a podcast, and I know you do some additional freelance work on top of that as well as, as a climbing coach, has that been part of that big grand plan towards Just Do It? Or has it just come about along the way because it's been a passion and an interest? That, that goal came about uh, about a year into this whole thing. I mean, I, I think it was always there. I lived at Smith Rock for seven years um, in Bend, Oregon, which is like 30 minutes away and was climbing at, sit, at Smith obsessively, <clears throat> just working my way through all the climbs and just do it was always like the climb, you know, like the ultimate challenge at Smith and just such a beautiful route, really inspiring. Um, I was actually there the day that Adam Andra onsighted it, which is still the most inspiring thing I've ever seen in climbing, the most incredible thing I've ever seen. But I never thought I, I didn't, I don't think I thought it was in range for me. You know, I don't think I thought it was realistic goal or attainable. And it was actually a question from a guest who I've had on the show, Steve Bechtel. He's a coach at Climbstrong. He's the the founder of Climbstrong here in the States. And I did a reverse interview where Ethan Pringle was interviewing me on my show just so my listeners could get to know me a little bit and things like that. And I had, I had reached out to, or actually Ethan had reached out to guests who had been on and said, Hey, if you want to submit questions for Steven, like we're, we're going to ask him on the podcast. 
And S- Steve Bechtel was like, if you could only do one more route in your life, what would it be? And then the follow-up question was, why aren't you trying it now? And it just kind of lit this fire like, oh, shit, you know, there is one. There is one. I didn't think it was important to me until he asked that question, but that was the first thing that came to mind. And then that follow-up question, like, why aren't you trying it now? It just, it just kind of planted the seed in my head. And I realized that, you know, the way I had been thinking about it is that, oh, if I ever happened to be good enough, that would be a really cool objective to do. And I realized, oh, that's totally backwards. That's the, that's the wrong way of thinking about it because I'm not going to magically improve to that degree without having an impetus, without having a driver. So I need to make that a goal believe that I'm capable and then work backwards from there and have that as my guiding light. If I have any chance of leveling up to that degree, because for people listening, I've climbed 13 B. So eight B in the French grades, but you know, this thing's eight C plus 14 C. So quite a few steps for me to progress to, to have a chance of doing the thing someday. And is the podcast for you a, um, what's the word, a, a direct contributor or a strategic task that you feel like when you gather your guests and you think about who you want to interview next, are you thinking, actually, this is another little tiny stepping block, something that can contribute to my own goals towards just do it? Are you building around you like a big fence of knowledge and inspiration and, you know, influence? Short answers. Uh, I, I I don't know what the short answer is. It's kind of a yes and no thing. Like I definitely started this thing to scratch my own itch. You know, like I had a burning need to, I just had a thousand questions, you know, like when I was a newer climber and there wasn't much available on the internet yet. I, I started climbing in 2007. So 15 years ago, 14 years ago. And I was always just scouring, looking for answers to these questions that I had. I had so many questions. And when other podcasts started coming out, climbing podcasts, I always felt like I had a thousand questions to add to the conversation. You know, like they never got quite to the heart of my curiosity. And so starting this thing was really to answer as many of those as I could. It's not some grand plan necessarily to achieve my own goal but that's that's part of it and it's really neat because i think that journey that story is completely relatable to everyone listening so if i selfishly seek out things that are going to help me you know wisdom and and advice that's going to help me so many people out there are going to be able to apply that to their own situation but it's it's kind of a mix you know i'm always just a curious person i really love learning about people and and it's fascinating to me how different we all are not only in our climbing but just how we navigate life and and how we find purpose in life and things like that i'm always interested in digging into like what makes a person tick you know what what keeps them clicking over and engaged what makes them so passionate about what they do whatever it is so it's it's a mix i think but it's really fun to to be able to do both, I guess. Um, sometimes the show, I'm really glad I didn't brand my show as a training show. I think about that a lot, actually. Um, I think it'd be difficult to stay engaged as, as fascinated as I am with climbing for training. And as much as I, I love it and want to learn everything, 
I can't talk about it every week. You know, I can't do a two hour conversation about it every single week. So mixing it up and having lighter conversations or just tackling subjects that I don't think about much, but this guest has a lot of experience with that keeps it really interesting. And do you think over time with the, because when I look at the guests that you've had on the show, it's been a really broad set of people, you know, even though you have this interest in training, it's not like you've got 80% of the guests on the show are all just coaches and people that are always in the gym doing one armors and hanging off 20 mil edges and whatnot and monos, et cetera. Has that influence of that guest cohort changed your outlook to climbing with over time? Or do you mm. think it just represents your feelings about climbing on, as a whole? That's a really good question. That's a really good question. I don't know if it's, yeah, has it, has it changed my outlook or been a reflection of my outlook? I, I'm not really sure. I mean, it's, it's definitely a reflection of my curiosity. You know, these are just the people that seem interesting to me for whatever reason. And sometimes I don't know if I always directly relate to it, but I just like to try things on. I like to try on different perspectives and like try to imagine myself approaching life from this person's perspective. You know, it's just, it's just interesting. It can really, um, it can really take pressure off. I think that's, that's something that's always been interesting to me is that we can, we're all so good at creating our own suffering, right? Like we create these expectations and um, these goals for ourselves. And then we can be, we're, we're often the worst. We behave the worst towards ourselves, you know, like we, we're much harder on ourselves than we are with our friends or with our loved ones or uh, family or anything like that. So, and, and, you know, we love climbing and we all take it seriously because we love it. We want to get better, but that's such a double-edged sword and it can really be hard. It can, it can be negative and it can be unnecessary, an unnecessary source of suffering. And so just talking to different people and hearing how much fun some people have with climbing and how light they are with it, it, it just, it can help, I guess, just zoom out and look at yourself a little bit more objectively and realize that this is just a silly game that we're all playing. You know, it can take some pressure off and it's, not to belittle it because it, it is important to all of us listening to this podcast, but I just find it, it broadens things. It's, it softens those hard edges that can kind of cut the wrong way. If that makes sense. Mm. I think you're, you're very right in saying that when you, you also get to talk to a lot of people that are high performers and very good at what they do with their guests on your show, or you, you just meet them in the crag and end up talking to them is most people are just so much more normal and relatable and fun and not super serious or like complete robots about their performance that you realize that it's quite possible, maybe not to the nth degree in terms of like, you know, how far you get in terms of the right at the top level, but it's very possible for everyone to have to go a long way along that journey towards performance mm. and these people aren't all complete uh i want to say like air quotes freaks of nature um <laughs> they're they're relatively normal people uh they just have in my opinion a lot of, a lot of focus mm -hmm. yeah i think you're right and actually that's in, that's an interesting thought it makes me think of like my time before starting the podcast because i was the person that was convinced that I had to suffer a lot to become the best climber I could be. I had to make a lot of sacrifices, you know? So I was 
living like a monk and just streamlining my entire week and everything in my life, trying to optimize just everything, what I ate, how I slept, like how I spent my free time. You know, I had this whole like wind down routine and this whole morning routine. It was just, it kind of became this prison that I created out of all these, all these things in the name of improvement. And I wasn't getting results from that. And so I just started getting really curious and asking people at the cliff just more and more questions, you know, like, because living at Smith, you don't have a lot of 515 climbers come through, but you have a lot of very good climbers come through. And I, you know, there's friends of mine that were living in town and a lot of visiting climbers that were climbing at a world-class level. And so I just started observing what they were doing and asking them questions. And none of them were doing any of that stuff. You know, they're all drinking a beer at the end of the day and they're all just like more relaxed about the whole thing. So it was just, it really clued me in. It was this aha moment of like, dude, you're putting a lot of energy in the wrong direction because this clearly isn't the thing, you know, it's, there's something else that you're missing. There's some principle that you're, you're glossing over. And you and I have talked about this. Like I was way in the weeds and just nitpicking all these little details and missing some of the broader, more important stuff, I think. And, and that was leading to my frustration and I wasn't happy, you know, I was just like spinning my wheels in the mud, just working really hard and, and just not really getting very far. So um, that curiosity, it, it just led me to, to want to sit down with more and more people and ask them like, what do you actually do? What does your week actually look like? Because I had created this image in my mind of these like perfect, you know, robot climbers that were doing all the things, but yeah, like you said, that's not real people. None of them were like that. Yeah. A question that I had that I sort of posed myself um, when I was thinking about what I wanted to ask you about the guests that you'd had on the show over the last couple of years was when you think about the guests and, you know, talking about them being very, very normal people and from lots and lots of different backgrounds and different approaches, is there anything that you've seen common in terms of those climbers early formative years before they came into climbing such as uh, i'll pick a sort of few random examples of do you find that people typically come from another sport or a broad range of sports before specializing down into climbing so they've got a big base net do you see people typically always having done the sport in their childhoods as well as adulthood to become you know get right to the top levels um It'd be really interested to hear whether you've, you've seen any kind of broad patterns in terms of that early formative part of their career. Yeah, that's an interesting question. I, I can't think of any parallel paths that are common. Um, I mean, the easiest answer is that all of the very top people, like the best of the best, the guys climbing V16 and the girls climbing V14 and, or, you know, 14 plus, 515, whatever, um, they all started young. You know, they all started young. They've all been doing it for a long time. Some of them had coaches. Some of them didn't have coaches, but they all had some amount of, I don't know if structure is the right word, but they took it seriously as kids and they spent a lot of time climbing as kids and they may or may not have been training, but they just were putting time in, in the gym through those formative years and their bodies are like purpose built now for climbing. But the encouraging thing is that I've also... I've had a number of, of um, 
conversations with you know some of these dark horses like people whose names we wouldn't have seen in the news but they've gotten really good at the sport some of them have started later um as you were asking that question emil abrahamson just came to mind you know he started pretty late and he was like a he made fun of himself he said he was like a chubby kid that played video games before he got into climbing at like age 16 and you know he's going to climb v15 one of these days he's getting really close to that and that is I think I think a more interesting person to kind of latch on to for myself as someone who also started late. And, you know, I have like a loose background in athletics, but nothing relevant to climbing, really. So climbing's always been kind of a, a struggle. But if he can do it, I can do it, you know. So I, I'm really interested in looking at him and taking lessons from him over someone like drew ruana for instance who's climbed a bunch of v16s in the last year not that drew doesn't have valuable things to share but it's just less relevant to someone like me and you know emil has just he's very very thoughtful very smart he has a reason for doing everything that he does in his training and his approach to improving and he's just he's just persistent he's just getting after it and he doesn't stop you know like he works around injuries if he gets a tweak he finds a way to train around it and then he comes back and he has like <clears throat> this is something i've been working on this year that i think one commonality in the people that reach a high level later in life that are still climbing hard in their in their 40s that started late whatever they have very clear goals they have something very definitive that's guiding them towards improvement whereas i've i think for a long time just kind of had this sense that I wanted to be a better climber in general, but I don't think that approach stokes the fire quite as hot, you know, like if you have one boulder problem or one route that you're obsessed with and you just think about it all the time and you want to do whatever it takes to get better. Um, I just see that work really well for people. They just latch onto that and they keep kind of reiterating their training and their approach to improvement until they get it right and they figure it out and then they do the thing and they've leveled up massively along the way, along that journey. Yeah. Um, I, I think just to answer your question, like one other thing that came to mind is I think one common thing I see is that the people that have success in climbing who start late tend to be very active people. Um, they have like a pretty big base of just activity and movement, or they become that way. You know, they're not someone who sits on the couch and does nothing on the rest days and then trains a few days a week. You know, they're, they're moving, they're doing lots of stuff. They're just, they've kind of built this, um, higher degree of output, um, this higher capacity, I guess, as an athlete in general, whether that's just hiking a lot, they enjoy hiking, being in the mountains or riding their bike to work and, you know, over jumping in the car for their commute or things like that. Like, I, I think that's something I have noticed is that, whether they climbed young or not, they have always moved a lot and they continue to move a lot. Mm. I say that a couple of things that I've, I've noticed kind of been really consistent with a lot of the elite and be interesting to see whether you've, you've seen the same, same patterns is that one, they, they have a, a unique and very productive relation or effective relationship with failure and mm. and i'll call it negative feedback but you know painful uncomfortable situations and the way that they they process it and deal with it 
And then secondly, I think that they also have a really interesting approach and attitude around learning and a kind of real thirst and joy in in learning new things. I think that's very, very common across almost everyone in whatever discipline. Yeah, I think that's true. I think I've seen that as well. Just the the people that excel tend to almost get excited when they get totally shut down by something and they just go straight towards it, right? Like like that's that's the opportunity for growth is this thing that I just discovered that I suck at. Like I'm going to I'm going to try to fix that and get good at it so I can take care of that weakness and um you know, it's so it's so easy to protect our egos and do the opposite and shy away from those things. Um, but it's, it is interesting. I don't know, like some elite performers (laughs) and I haven't, I haven't met Daniel. I haven't had him on the show, but, um, I just rewatched Daniel Woods doing return of the sleepwalker. And it just kind of hit me like he, you know, he, for people that haven't seen this, he does this V17. It takes him months, you know, best boulder in the world, probably Daniel Woods. And, uh, he does the thing and he gets up onto the slab. And he's just like almost stuck there. You know, it takes him like five minutes to climb this, this slab that I don't think is terribly hard. And it just hit me like, man, you know, in other videos and stuff, people have kind of uh, joked about Daniel's slab climbing. Like he's not the best slab climber, but as far as that goes, like there's some degree of specialization that is also really important, you know, like taking care of weaknesses and being interested in, in progressing your weaknesses is important, but focusing at the exclusion of some of those other skills is also a common trend I notice in top performers. Like Daniel's just the strongest boulderer in the world. And he's so good at the really hard, steep stuff. And the slab climbing doesn't seem to hold him back, you know, cause he just, aside from like a tricky top out here and there, he just doesn't have to do it very often to be the best in the world at his sport. Yeah. It's a, it's a little underrated in a way. And I, I sometimes feel a touch guilty with some of the stuff that we've done over the years at Lattice in the way that like with a lot of our performance profiling, we will work in a very obvious way to identify things which might sit as, you know, weak profile markers or things that you would pay attention to and would be worth your time investing effort and training and adaptation into addressing over six months, a year, two years, et cetera. And that's a really good thing to do. And it's a really important part of the performance equation. But I wonder whether we've actually had not a strong enough or consistent conversation around the really exploiting and milking your strengths that you have mm. and how much you can get out of that if it's coupled with working on the weaknesses. And the two things kind of have to go together. And you have people, and I spot them in you know, either our clients or people I meet sometimes talking at the wall or at the crag that are so obsessed and focused on their weakness that they're wanting to do that they completely forgot, forget to use any resources or time on, you know, exploiting the thing that they're actually good at. Cause you also have to develop that long-term. Totally. Yeah. That, <laughs> that was me. Honestly, I, um, I grew up bouldering and, and really thrived in like steep featured boulder you know, um, bouldering, like granite bouldering. I did a lot of my, or I did a lot of my early bouldering in Leavenworth, Washington. And, um, you know, I was like a strong athletic 
young guy in his twenties, but my finger strength was really bad because I started climbing at 18 years old, but I, I could get around it by doing these like steep squeeze climbs and things like that. And I eventually hit a point where I was like, man, my finger strength sucks. Like I want to get way better at this. And I moved to Smith rock and did all this really technical thin crimping and stuff for seven years. And it was totally the opposite of how I think my genetics, um, or I guess like the, the type of climbing that I thrive in, like, you know, how I'm kind of my predisposition with my genetics and things like that. And it was really helpful. Like it rounded me out a lot as a climber and I learned a lot from that, but I did exactly what you're talking about. Like I, I neglected the body strength and the pulling power and the shoulder strength and things like that, that I had always leveraged in my early bouldering. And it's been interesting. Like now the last two years I left Oregon, I left Smith. And I've been able to travel and climb in Waco and other steeper places. And I'm like, oh my God, I, I think I could actually be really good at this stuff if I actually did it a lot, you know, like I'm built for it and it, it feels good. Like it feels right to me. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I just can't help but wonder now, like what if I had just done more of that for those seven years, instead of being so super focused on this one thing that I thought I was worst at, which was, you know, holding on to little holds all the time. Mm, I guess, I guess you'll never know, will you now? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But you're right. I think it's a balance, man. I think, and that's another thing that Emil talked about that I really loved is that he, he actually has this philosophy where he will train his strengths really aggressively. Like for him, it's one arm pull-ups. He's just a a freak with one arm pull-ups. And, you know, upper body power, front levers, things like that. And he trains that to try to get the most out of it that he possibly can. But then he seeks out climbs and styles that are his weakness and tries to work on his weaknesses on the climbing wall. I thought that was really interesting. That's kind of the opposite of what I've always done. Um, And it's working for him. And it's just it's just kind of like, oh, that's something interesting. I think I want to try that. I don't know exactly what that looks like, but I've in talking to him, I realized like, I've never done that. I've got really strong shoulders. I've never trained that. I always just have taken it for granted and used it as best I could. But I've, I realized like, I think at the time I was in Rocky Mountain National Park and I was trying a boulder problem. I ended up doing, um, it was my first V11. I ended up doing this boulder problem called Veritas Sit, but it has a lower V12 start. And I realized that, man, it's just a hard shoulder move and I can almost do it without ever having trained that. But what if I actually train that? Like, I think I could get a lot more out of it because I, I've never done it before. I've never done any sort of ring exercise or row or anything that really targets that like outward Gaston shoulder strength. And it just got me really excited to kind of flip things around and try that for the next training block, like train the, train the strengths, keep working on the weaknesses, but on the climbing wall with the weaknesses. Mm. it's uh yeah it's uh it's, it's funny you brought up a meal because i was i coincidentally i was actually chatting to him yesterday um oh no way yeah and interviewing him all about his climbing and and, and you're right he, he has got this really good balance between strengths and weaknesses and using his time effectively to work on both of those and i think he's also managed to find a really good balance between inside and outdoor climbing as well which Mm. i think is really unusual and and we definitely find with our client base that they struggle with this 
with that balance between inside and outside because the demands of the two sports as such because they almost almost are two different things right. are, are, are quite unique and it's hard to balance where you spend your time especially with most people having full-time jobs and outdoor rock is generally a little bit less accessible the conditions aren't as good you need weather to be right etc but indoors so easy but there isn't a perfect crossover and i wonder whether you've seen anything in terms of the people that you have had on your show and how they deal with that or has it primarily been outdoor climbers that you've really focused on yeah that's a good that's a good question that last sentence i think was really key because i was about to say yeah, all the top people I talk to spend a ton of time on rock. Like they rock climb all the time. They're obsessed. And this isn't true across the board, but for the most part, those top performers on rock, they default to climbing on rock. And then when they can't do that because of weather or because of the season's bad or whatever, or like maybe they'll take one training block per year, which is, you know, six weeks or two months, then they go in the gym. They supplement with the gym when the weather doesn't work out. But that last comment was really good because I realized, okay, that's just looking through the lens of these outdoor people. But if I think about Nathaniel Coleman, you know, he got a silver medal in the Olympics and has also climbed V16 on rock. He's the exact opposite. Like his whole life is built around his training program in the gym. And he's able to go outside and apply it to rock very quickly, which I think is really impressive. So I think I think there is a way to balance both and be good at both. I, 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 I tend to see that um, people that get really, really good in the gym have the tools to translate it to rock if they've been climbing, off and, uh, climbing long enough and have that experience and have put the time in along the way. It doesn't necessarily go the other way. Like you can be a really good rock climber and just totally suck when you go in the climbing gym. And I think that's really interesting. You know, I, I don't totally understand that. Like I've been here in Waco for two months and I remember uh, after Waco last year, because I kind of think of Waco as like a outdoor gym, you know, it's very steep, very physical, very powerful. But I remember I went to the gym for the first time in a couple months and just, it just felt so hard and I don't understand why, <laughs> you know, I don't, I don't understand why it's so different because you know, there's slopers here, there's crimps here, there's pinches here. And you go in the gym and you can even climb on something that feels like it's the same style. Yeah. There's not a direct translation back and forth between the two. I don't know if I answered your question. I feel like I'm just rambling. No, no, no. It's, uh, <clears throat> it, it came up actually recently with someone that I was chatting to about that, that transfer between indoors and outdoors. And uh, was we were chatting about it, the, the thing that I, I thought it actually maybe came down to was that we often make this mistake that when we look at people who have a habit or a, a behavior that we go oh wow that's that's really impressive um i want to know what's going on with that and then you kind of you dive into it you often just look at the kind of the skin the surface the tip of the iceberg and you've got someone you say hey how did you transfer your outdoors to inside so easily and they go well i just put in a month of indoor climbing and i felt great and you go wow well Person A did that and they're a V14 climber and they just did it in a month. So it's clearly got to be doable. But if you dive beneath the surface, you may well find that that individual actually had 10 plus years as a junior competition indoor climber. 
So there's an mm. incredible experiential base to indoor climbing that they're really leaning on to do that. And so I think often what this comes down to is if you look at any particular climber, if you look at those two bases of pyramids, indoors versus outdoors, if there's a relative you know, imbalance between those in terms of that big, big base of experience, then the transfer is not going to be as easy. Like for me, I always really struggle to go back inside from outside. Like you, I feel pretty awful. But if you build up the last 25 years of my climbing, probably 20 years of all the hours then <laughs> has been actually outside. I have done plenty mm -hmm. out inside, but the big, big base is really outdoors. And I think that's what truly describes my experience. But it's hard to see because people will go, oh, well, Tom's an elite level climber. What's going on with this? Mm. And I'm this. I'm the same way. Yeah, I, I would say probably seventy-five or eighty percent of my time climbing has been on rock over the gym. And I, you know, I do. When I lived in Bend, I would I would go bouldering in the gym two or three nights a week after work. But it was never my focus point for a lot of time. Consistently, you know, for for months and months at a time. You know, I, I never had that. Um, I've just never climbed as well in the gym because I, I've never put quite as much effort and time into it. But I had another thought as you were talking. I think another commonality I see um, with people that I talk to and people that spend a lot of time in the gym and are able to readily transfer that to the rock, I think they spend a lot more time on spray walls or on the boards than they do on commercial gym sets. You know, like they have a little spray wall in their dojo or you just see them making up hard moves in on the boulder wall and not paying attention to what the colors are you know they're kind of creating a little bit more of an outdoor experience in the gym i see that work really well you know like they make up weird moves i, th I think the gym if you're talking about commercial bouldering and just going in and paying for your membership and having fun for a couple hours it's often too flowy you know it's like a little bit too smooth and the movements are designed to have a, an enjoyable bouldering experience but outdoor climbing is not always like that you know it puts you in really weird uncomfortable bunched positions or stretched out positions it's never quite right you know it's the foothold's not quite where you want it to be and you just have to deal with it and i think that is that's something that you get from like moonboarding or from you know from a spray wall that it, it seems to work really well, you know, like a lot of the guys that I think of that just got crazy strong from just bouldering in the gym and not doing any supplemental training. That's what they spend their time doing is just finding a collection of holds, making stuff up, trying really hard. It's, it's pretty simple approach that seems to work. So what you're saying is bad setting makes good climbers. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. That's like actually true. I think. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, I'm betting's too good you're doing a I'm, disservice to all your clients who want to climb hard on rock yeah i'm going to clip that out and use that as a sound bite you heard it here perfect <laughs> do you see any differences between the climbers that you have interviewed on the europe so on the european british side of the atlantic versus american climbers and guests because I'm really interested to hear, yeah, whether you've seen a difference because I spend quite a lot of time flitting between the US and Europe and 
Um, yeah. Oh, I really want to ask you the same question, but I'll, I'll try to answer first. I, the first thing that comes to mind is that it seems like the training culture in America is even stronger than it is in other places. Um, to our detriment, I think that a lot of American climbers, and I don't know if I see this at the top end, but I see this in moderate climbers or climbers that, um, you know, are, are, are like me that are trying to break into 513 or 514 or things like that. I think a lot of us get a little bit too wrapped up in training for cultural reasons, whereas a lot of the Europeans just default to rock climbing and doing more rock climbing. And they might supplement with training, but I could be wrong about that, but that that's my impression is that there's a stronger cultural thing that's been influenced by social media and by the movies that we watch, you know, growing up watching Rocky and things like that. We all think we have to like sweat and suffer and hang out in campus or hangboard until we like can't make a fist with our arms anymore and just go home totally wrecked. Um, and it doesn't work very well a lot of the time. Um, but I want to ask you the same thing. What, what differences do you notice? I, I would say almost exactly the same thing as um, I think, and it's sort of lagged or brought over into the UK as well as I think there's a very strong training culture in the UK and the US. And sometimes it can be to the detriment of the general, not, not to the general population, but to it can to the, be to the detriment of climbers who overly embrace that to the point where they don't see the balance in performance mm. that training is a part of the equation that goes into performance and they overdo it um whereas i find a lot of the european climbers have a, a more natural balance towards that um and I, I don't really know exactly why it is but it, yeah, it feels like a, a common thing between the States and the UK and then maybe Europe on the on the other side of things. Mm. Um, and I don't know how we change it or it or it will change, but that's really the only real habit that I've or uh, pattern that I've noticed. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, I mean, yeah, you guys and your cellar boards, it seems like that's like when I think of climbers in the UK, that's what I think of. I think of these little cellar boards and Ben and Jerry just like campusing on these little handmade crimpy holds and things. Yeah, it, it's produced a lot of really, really strong climbers. And yeah, in some ways it's been good because those that at the top end have done a lot of the training, but have also found that balance with the other aspects that go into performance, they end up, end up being these sort of idols that people look up to and then inform you know, the next generation of climbers that come through. And I think that's, that is a really good thing. Um, and as much that many of us that spend all of our time outdoors and we don't do competition climbing, I think competition climbing for the greater part has been a hugely beneficial thing for performance in rock climbing because it has really stressed that training element. And I think it's producing and has produced a big, you know, wide generation of very, very well conditioned and very capable climbers on all aspects, like technically, tactically, physically, mentally. Hmm. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see what happens in the next decade or so, isn't it? Or won't it be? Yeah, I mean, yeah. Uh, it, it, I 
loads of the juniors that I see who physically are so far beyond the current group that are performing at the top, you know, maybe around 30 years old. Um, and those that are coming through the 18, 20, 22, I think are pretty far uh, ahead, really. And the only thing that isn't positioning them right at the top is a degree of experience, really. And give them another five years and it'll be an, a new level. Do you think it is that? Do you think it's them or not pretending, treating themselves more like athletes and spending more time doing general athletic strength building and things like that? Because, because I think that's interesting. I've been thinking about this as we've been talking is that that's something I see in America is that I, I feel like we need to be a little bit more clear about what I, what training is or, or what people do when, when they're training. Because when I think of the training culture in the UK, it's a lot of cellar boards. It's a lot of time on spray walls. It's climbing oriented training. Whereas in the States, I see a lot of people doing weird stuff with bands, you know, doing weird, like pull-up exercises at the end of their session, doing like ab exercises until they want to throw up and maybe doing something with kettlebells. And I mean, there, there is, if you're an adult and you're coming into climbing for this first time and you don't have an, a background as an athlete, some amount of that stuff is incredibly valuable. And I think it's a good thing. I think it's a good shift and it keeps people from getting these injuries from just, you know, going headlong into um, climbing and just climbing until they blow out a shoulder or something. But I think a lot of us get the balance wrong. Um, but yeah, I'm curious, is that what you're seeing shifting is, are these kids just becoming better rounded athletes at a younger age? Yeah. Or is I think something they, else? I think they essentially have a conditioning base that gets built or produced or, you know, created during their formative years. And that is then something that they can lean on for the next 10, 15 years as they then refine and really polish all the rest of the sort of the longer term things that take uh, to create like a, a really well conditioned physical, you know, physically capable athlete that trains effectively through their teenage years can be created in five years or so. And you can really achieve something in five years with the, the right approach, right age, good genetics, but mm. you can't create an incredibly technically capable climber in five years at least not that I've seen. Sometimes it's, it's sort of, um, you think you see it because they're so strong and they're so above the grade of the thing that they're on. They look take technically capable, but I think true mastery in terms of technique, for example, it, it's like sport, sporting psychology as well is built over 10, 15, sometimes 20 years or more. It's a really long-term game. But if those individuals, the youth now are getting that bit, the physical part sorted earlier on, I think they have more time to focus on those other longer term elements that all then pull together. Um, mm. And it's still why I think I would say that this isn't an early specialization sport. We're not going to consistently see the world's top performers being 14, 15 years old. I think we're going to continue to see people in their twenties being the, the real elite pushing stands in mm. column. Yeah, that makes sense to me intuitively. There's just so much to learn in climbing you know it's it's not just one gymnastics routine that we have to master it's just it's ever changing the playing field's always changing a little bit and building that, that vocabulary of movement larger and larger and larger with every year and with every climb 
yeah, that, that makes sense to me. That makes sense intuitively to me. Do, do you have a notice? With any... Go ahead. Oh, so, um, I was going to say, um, do you have a notice with any of the people that you've interviewed that they have often come from a back? I know you talked about coaching before, but having a degree of mentorship from mm. more experienced climbers around them or someone who they hung out with in their early years who was an absolutely incredible performer. And that's where some of this has, has come through from. Yeah, I think so. I think so. And I haven't thought about that much, but I think, I think I actually see that as a pretty clear contrast. Like it's, I think your perspective or your paradigm of what climbing is, what hard climbing is, is so shaped by the people that you're around when you start. And that really seems to predict how quickly you become good or how good you become, you know, like if you're, if you're surrounded by five eleven climbers and they all think that five twelve is really, really hard, it's just difficult to break through that and go beyond that. Right. You've just put this thing on this pedestal and it's, it just feels big and scary and you don't do any of the, the steps that you need to do to reach five thirteen. But if 513 is normal and everyone around you is doing it, it's, <laughs> it, 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 I see this a lot actually in relationships. Like you see someone start dating a professional climber and then somehow they jump like three or four grades in the next year. You know, <laughs> I'm always fascinated by that. And it goes both ways, like guys dating girls, vice versa, like whoever the professional climber is, I think it speaks to just the the influence, all these little habits, these mindsets that you absorb from being immersed in, in that high performance sort of culture. So, yeah, I think, I think so. I think there's, I think that's a really big thing. And if I reflect back on my own climbing, like that's definitely something that um, led me to be kind of a late bloomer in climbing is that I just didn't have any strong climbers to look up to when I started, you know, like, V8 was like the hardest anybody climbed in my little bouldering gym and 511 was like a big deal, you know? And mm -hmm. it's just, it takes, it takes years and years to kind of, I think it's probably easier now um, because we have so many videos, like we see so many people excelling and they're not all professional climbers. Like a lot of these people are just normal people that climb whatever V14, you know, you've never heard of them before. And it's like, Oh, this, this person's a total crusher. I think it helps you believe or helps us believe that like, if this person can do it, maybe I can do it too. Um, but that's a relatively new thing. And I think when I started, it took a long time to realize that normal people climbed 512, normal people climbed 513. You know, I just thought, I don't know who I thought was doing it. I thought it was like only the best of the best um, just because of who was around me and, and what they thought. Yeah. I I often joke that if the, the, the most uh, effective training plan that anyone can buy is to uh, find someone whose climbs about six grades harder than them and just hang out with them every single week. <laughs> Nothing else. Just just follow that person and just hang out with them yeah. as much as you can. And it's so bizarre how much people will just absorb that grade over time it doesn't happen overnight and it is a slower process than you know structured targeted program uh, program programming but give it a, a year or two years it's it's remarkable and like you said mm. i've seen it go both ways 
uh, across the genders, across age categories, all of it. <laughs> Show and your climbing and projects and the stuff that you've learned. And um, I have to say a big thank you to you really for what you've done with your podcast over the last couple of years. I think it's really up the game in terms of what people have been doing within climbing podcasting. And it's, they're just really, really good episodes. And I really, really hope that you continue doing it. And for anyone listening, do make sure you go and check out the Nugget uh, Climbing Podcast. I think you have a Patreon as well, don't you? That has like hidden episodes and additional stuff as well. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah. That recent one that you and I did, that second one is a patron episode. So what I've done is I have all these guests on the show and, you know, very often we'll talk about like a project that they're trying or um, something along those lines, like they're training for something specifically. And then I do these follow-up episodes where, you know, six months later, a year later, they go try the thing, they send the thing, whatever it is. We do a quick follow-up chat and not actually not a quick follow-up chat. Usually they're like an hour. They're like full length episodes, hour, hour and a half. Cause that's just what, what I do. Um, but yeah, so I put out a free teaser whenever one of those comes out and the full episodes available, available for people that support the show. So if you get invested in one of these guests and you want to follow their story, it's a way to kind of stay tuned into what they're up to. And then some of them, like the one that you and I did, are just kind of more of a deep dive than we would normally go on the regular podcast into a specific topic. You know, like you and I put out a, a follow-up where we just talked about how to program your training. And we did a whole hour and a half on that topic and just really got into the, the nuts and bolts of it. So it's just for people that already love the show, it's just more of the same, but even geekier, a little bit more la- laid back. You know, hopefully you feel like you're just hanging out with us and, um, it's a fun thing, but yeah, if people want to check that out, it's patreon.com slash the nugget climbing. And you can also just go to the nugget That's the podcast website and you can find everything that I'm up to over there as well. 